Let's turn together this morning to Ephesians chapter 4, and as we are making our way through this great epistle of the riches of God's grace, what an encouragement this storehouse of blessing is to our hearts. Uh, thank you all for your kind, encouraging words. Um, I've had several of you come up and say, Brother, two years in Revelation. I felt like some weeks I was in the tribulation uh, because it's a lot. It's a heavy book. We realize that. But then you've been quick to say, my heart needed uh, this time in God's Word in the book of Ephesians. So that's a blessing as we pray as elders and deacons here on where the Lord would lead and what books to cover. Um, we're so great, the Lord, grateful to Him that He led us in this wonderful book of Ephesians. We're looking this morning at part two of the put-on, put-off relationship. Put off the old self, put on the new self. And we're going to look in detail as to what that means even more so here this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, and this is verses 17 to 24. Let's look at this together. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. For those of you who were not with us last week, just by way of a brief review, we saw here in, in verse 17 this new identity that we are to have in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're given virtues by His grace. And this is the new life that we have in the Lord. As you go back to Ephesians chapter 4 here into verse 1, Paul begins by saying, therefore, as the prisoner of the Lord, he's urging them as Gentile, now Gentile Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. As we like to say here, if you're heading to heaven, you ought to live like it, right? It's not that we just have our fire insurance, we're saved from hell, and then we get to live any way we want to live. We want to please the Lord in all respects. We want to honor him with a godly life. So we saw last week, there's virtue by His grace alone. This is the byproducts of living for God. These are not virtues that we drum up of our own free volition. These are virtues that are given to us by His grace. And so we said last week that salvation is not a matter of behavior modification. The Lord Jesus Christ did not come simply to make us better moral, civil people. He came to bring life transformation. Believers have a new mind, a new will, a new heart, a new inheritance, a new relationship, a new power, and a new knowledge. 
new wisdom and new perception, new understanding, new righteousness, new love, new desire, and new citizenship. And all of those things we've seen so far in this book of Ephesians. It's a book of virtue by His grace, the highest of life lived for the Lord. So we began last week with the put off, put on relationship, and we saw in Ephesians 4.17 the first characteristic of that put off, put on relationship, a new identity, a new identity in the Lord. You know this verse very well. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old things are passed away in what? All things become new. So there we see a new identity. We once were in a very different way of life. And in fact, Ephesians 2 talks about that. We were dead in trespasses and sin. We were slaves to various passions. This is our testimony. But here we have a new identity, new people, new creations to live for Him. And let's turn together by way of reminder here, Romans chapter 7, verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 7, verses 18 to 25. Here Paul is speaking of the new life that he has in the Lord. And he talks about that struggle in the new life. Just because we have a new identity, it doesn't mean that we are struggle-free. In fact, the struggle has just begun. Paul says in verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, and he qualifies it, in my flesh. You see, we're new creations, aren't we? There's a new eye that lives within us. We have all been, if we know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we have been crucified with Christ, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live, but Christ lives in me. Amazing hope, amazing miracle, the creator of the universe, the one that came, the second member of the Trinity, the one who lives and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the one who came and lived, died, rose again, ascended into the heavens, who makes intercession for us. Now through the agency of his Holy Spirit, he resides in us. But yet we still live or are incarcerated in unredeemed flesh. And there's the battle. We all relate to this battle in various degrees. He says, for I do not do the good I want to do. Or pardon me, let me back up here. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is saying here there's an understanding of his own actions that he has. And he's struggling that he knows nothing good dwells within him. For he says, I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. We've died once to the penalty of sin, but brothers and sisters, we must die daily to the power of sin. Sin, So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He says, "If if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So here he's talking about the battle here. There's a tension. There's a war that goes on. The new I is battling against our flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Do you relate to this this morning? In thought, word, or deed, we sin every day in various degrees 
in various elements. All sin is sin, but not all sin is equal in matters of the weight of its effect on our lives or its consequence, but all sin is sin. So I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want to do is what I keep on doing. But if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do to, to right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Again, Romans 8, we wait for the redemption of the body. Romans 12, 1, we must present our bodies as living sacrifices. We have been crucified with Christ, but yet there's a war go on between the new I and the members of our body. Paul says it so well in verse 24, wretched man that I am, we could echo that this morning, who will deliver me from the body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's provided the resurrection, hasn't he? He's provided deliverance from the certainty of death. To the Christian, death has no sting. And so he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Would you go over with me? I thought of a verse here I'd love to share with you. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Listen, we're saved by grace. That's salvation. But sanctification is not all of grace. It's being enabled by grace. But it's also as new creations we must obey, isn't it? The Lord will not live the Christian life for us. There's something we must do by His grace, not apart from Him, but strengthened and empowered by Him, but it's one of the fruits of us having a new life, and that's having an obedience to his word. Jesus said it, if you love me, you'll do what? Keep my commandments. Obedience. So look at what we do here. He says in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, there's grace, living by the Spirit, you, here's our duty, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We live by the Spirit, that's grace. But there's something in sanctification out of obedience to the Lord and His truth that we must do. And that's we must put to death daily the deeds of the body and you will live. John Owen, that great Puritan preacher of the 18th century, said it this way. He said, be killing sin before it kills you. Get killing sin before it kills you. In other words, Jesus said we must cut off our hand and pluck out our eye. We cannot negotiate with it. It's so powerful that it took Jesus Christ to leave heaven's throne, to come to this earth, to live a sinless life, to lay down his life on the cross for us, to take our sin, the guilt and the penalty of it, to be buried, to rise three days later, to be raised, as Romans 4.25 says, for our justification, and then ascends into the heaven. And even now, part of his work as high priest, 
There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and it is he who lives to make intercession for us. Sin is so powerful, it took Christ himself to conquer it and to still pray for us and give us the victory through the Holy Spirit and by the power of his word so that we could be conformed to his image every day. So we must be killing sin before it kills us. We must pluck out the eye, cut off the hand. He's not talking there about self-mutilation, self-flagellation. What he's speaking about there is we cannot negotiate with sin. 2 Timothy 2, I love this verse, 2.22. It's one of my favorite verses to use with young men especially, but with men in discipleship. Flee, Paul says, youthful lust, fuego. It means to be a fugitive. Be a fugitive from sin. Run from it. Make it the daily habit in progress of your life. Flee it as a fugitive flees the law. You flee sin. Make it every effort of every fiber, sinew, and muscle of your whole being. Run from it. That's something we do. Aggressive sanctification. Flee. It's a command. Flee youthful lust. But as you know, living a victorious life in Jesus Christ isn't just saying no to something. It's saying yes to someone better. And so as he says in 2 Timothy 2.22, not only flee youthful lust, but here's what's good. He says pursue. It's the same kind of action. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Say no to youthful lust, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. As we're running from one, we're pursuing the other with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And my brothers and sisters, we can't do this on our own. So Paul says at the end of that verse, do this with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. From a pure heart. Listen, we are to be in the world but not of it. We are to love our neighbors ourselves, and therefore we must get to know our neighbor. Many of us, is, uh, and you will recognize this, we have unsaved friends, unsaved neighbors, and that's a good thing. We want to serve them and love them and care for them and practice hospitality with them, invite them into our homes and to show grace and love and mercy and kindness to them. Any neighbor in our path in need, anyone, we want to love them for the sake of the gospel, to share Christ and to serve them. But we also must make our inner circle of people, the closest, most dearest friends of our life, brothers and sisters in the Lord, who will call on the Lord from a pure heart. What does it mean? Who are actively fleeing sin, pursuing righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Those that love him with an un, unfettered love, an unqualified love. It's simply all that I am for all that he is. He's given us his fullness and love on the cross, and we are to give all of our lives, again, living sacrifices for Christ and his glory. That's our new identity. And Paul is saying this to these dear people as we go back to Ephesians 4. The apostle Paul is saying this to these new Christians. He's saying, don't be part of that Gentile life anymore, meaning your former way. He paints a picture here of the ethical bankruptcy of contemporary paganism presented in Romans 1, where Romans 1.21 simply says they became futile and their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Again, remember the Greek prided themselves on the height of academia, the height of elitism, the height of intellectualism, 
of sophistry, of earthly wisdom. They were futile. They were given over to futility. And sometimes the New Testament refers to that action as idolatry. So here the apostle is saying, have your new identity. No longer walk as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. No longer lead your lives, in other words, according to that old life. So here the apostle is giving us a wonderful remembrance of how we are to live our life. Now, simply by way of introduction, as we proceed on with Ephesians chapter 4, I want to bring a couple of things to your thinking. Some have texted or even emailed me this week asking if I would comment on it, and I will, because our text speaks to it. There have been two very profound events that have happened over the last week or two in media that you'll be familiar with. One is the exposing of past juvenile records by a young man named Josh Duger. The Duger family, very successful show, 19 children, very successful in very many ways in their lives. But yet it was revealed that this young man, Josh, at the age of 14, 12 years ago, had given himself over to insensuous pedophilia uh, to four of his sisters that were young at the time, very young. There was also one babysitter involved, and this now was ex exposed. By law, it's illegal to expose juvenile records that have been sealed by the court. And apparently there was a judge that had it out for this family that let these records go. Another judge has stepped in and said those records should be destroyed, and that's the right thing. That's the right thing. That was one incident. Uh, Megan Kelly, a very successful uh, journalist, commentator on Fox, had an interview with the Duger family, and they were talking. It broke my heart to see this family on trying to give weight of evidence to what happened. Sometimes, folks, the best response to controversy is to come off the public platform, in this case off the TV, just remain at home and be quiet and let a few others make an official statement for you. But to place your own daughters on there, they're saying that they have no remembrance of any of these uh, uh, wrong-touching episodes that the older brother did to the younger sisters. They said they were asleep at the time. They have no recollection of this. This doesn't ring true to me. And if you listen to their hearts and you listen to their words, they're saying, well, he was going through puberty and this was just a way for him to... Uh, kind of, you know, satisfy his curiosity with women. Well, this was not women, this was young girls, and this is not how young men satisfy curiosity. Um, there are tremendous side effects to this. 22% of those who had this done to them eventually later on in life passed this along. It's a much greater percentage of those that committed these kinds of acts if it's not dealt with in the gospel and dealt with through effective biblical counseling and even psychology in other ways, that this is uh, the, the repetitive rate even to one's own children can increase once they've gotten older. But a loving father would not put their children on the national stage to discuss this. Love covers, the Bible says, a, a multitude of sins. And what that means is love protects the scope of who has knowledge of one's failings. 
But we all realize the lure of money. And when you're a large family on a network that is paying you literally multi-millions to be on their broadcast, there's contractual obligations, and this is what we would call PR and spin for the sake of protecting a national television show to keep the money coming. This is unconscionable. The family should do what's right. The leadership of that family should pull all of their kids off of that show. They should remain quiet and allow this to heal and to work it through privately. That's number one. Number two, there was a, a different scenario, night and day, but just as noteworthy, that uh, this last week, as you know, that former Olympic champion, Bruce Jenner, a hero to many kids early on, of being a, a triathlete in the Olympics some three decades ago, has been going through a process known as becoming transgender. Now, this came out on the cover of Vanity Fair. Mr. Jenner, who now wants to be referred to as a woman, he has taken the name Caitlyn, spelled C-A-I-T-L-Y-N, Caitlyn Jenner, he also, on this same network, I believe, has a reality show coming out in July worth nine figures to him. Mr. Jenner has not had the surgery to remove his male parts. It's as gentle as I can say it from him. Uh, he's taken medication to uh, take on some characteristics of a woman. His voice is changing, his hair has grown out. But here, he has not gone through that full process. and. The New York Post and the New York Times came out with an article this last week that said Mr. Jenner is the worst of all the Kardashians. He's doing it simply for the money. There might be real truth to that. By the way, to be transgender, it means by surgery to convert yourself to the sex that you were not originally born. If you were a man, you would have surgery done to make you a full functional woman physically. If you're a woman, you would try to have surgery to make yourself a full functional man. But today, I want you to know, folks, disagreeing with someone is not hate speech, okay? That's a key thing that we have to remember. And also, stating your own opinion, especially from the Word of God, is not harassing other people. We have the same rights under the rule of law to propagate the gospel. Truth invites scrutiny, but error seldom wants to be challenged. Truth invites scrutiny. Error does not want to be challenged. And I shared this with these dear people because no matter whether they're from the lesbian, gay, transgender, or bisexual community, our desire, they may consider it hate speech, but our desire would to see them come to know Jesus Christ, isn't it, as their Lord and Savior. We'd want them to become regenerated. We'd want them to know the full expression of the newness of life. God has created man in his own image, and he's made us male and female. He's given us differences in how we view life and how we are wired up physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and we are to learn from each other as men and women in the body of Christ. Well, a gentleman on Fox had tweeted me, and he said, Steve, can you show me anywhere in the Bible where the transgender issue is dealt with? And I think I can. Would you turn with me there? Because I want you to see this. This is very important in our text here this morning. It's found in the Psalms. It might be an unlikely place. It's found in the Psalm, and I want you to go with me to Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139, the scriptures give clarity to these contemporary issues. Notice this in verse 1 of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me, and here's the key phrase, and known me. And known me. You see, brothers and sisters, I believe the transgender community is missing it on this one thing, and we love them, and we pray for them, and I want to tell you, I hope you'll pray for Mr. Jenner. It'd be great to see him come to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the the unique thing. According to Genesis, God has made man in his own image, created them male and female. What the transgender community is saying is, I'm no longer a man. I feel like I identify with more female characteristics. Therefore, God has made a mistake in how he has created me, and I'm going to recreate myself into my own image of my own feelings and alter the creative process as it were. But here David says, Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. Notice this in verse 2, you know me when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. He knows every one. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain to it. People love to say in our generation that the devil's in the details. Can I tell you this, that God is in the details. He knows every fiber of our being, every cell is wired just as he intended it. Every atom, every fiber of our our makeup, whether it's relational or emotional, emotional, every thought, he knows it all. He created us male and female very specifically. He says, all your ways, I know them all before they're even done. And David says, that kind of knowledge is way too high for us. We can't even attain to it. So he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? You see, our our duty is to honor God in all things. He says, if I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, that's the place of dying, you're there. If I take to the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light shall be about me night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, it doesn't matter geographically, relationally, thought-wise. It doesn't matter where we go, where we flee. We can never exhaust him. He is greater and more vast than the entirety of the universe. He knows his own. But look at this in the creative process here. For you formed my inward parts. There's no mistake with God, is there, folks? You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Mr. Jenner, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. The Lord formed you in your mother's womb. He says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. No surprise to God how we were fashioned, how we were made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them. The days 
that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Our God is an awesome God. He's in the details of our lives. He's not the God that stands from afar off. This is not the theology of Bette Midler from a distance. We all look pretty good, right? God watches us from a distance. No, he's in the very details of our lives. When at the moment of conception in our mother's womb, he knew every one of our days. In fact, he formed them for us. He intricately wove us together. He determined, listen, our sexual identity, our maleness and femaleness in our mother's womb. No wonder the psalmist says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. How does someone confused about maybe this morning their sexual identity? Can I encourage you, come to the word of God because his thoughts are right. His thoughts are true. He's formed you. He has formed you. Look with me at the last two verses, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. I think this is a wonderful text to share with the transgender community. Can you... Say, if you're a part of that community this morning, oh God, search me, know me. I'm confused about my identity. Try me, know my thoughts, if there's any grievous way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Grievous way, meaning any way to the Creator that doesn't agree with the perfection of how He's made me, how He's wired me, how He's fashioned me in His image. And may I say this again, and this is not hate speech this morning, but may I say this very emphatically. Someone's true identity is not the sum of their body parts. Your true identity is not simply your physicality. Your true identity is a heart and soul issue, and it will only find rest peace, joy, and contentment when it's found in God. And that's where we must come to this. The transgender, gay, lesbian, bisexual community is not our enemy, but they are our mission field. And as a church, this church, the evangelical church, we must think clearly and biblically about these things. Or we will join the fray of confusion out there. We, meet, we need not be intimidated. Live gospel, biblical truth. We need not be intimidated. As one member of that community said, that acronym belongs to us. I said, but etymology is a good thing. I'm a wordsmith at heart, a songwriter for many years. I love to write articles and things. And I love to find a new way to turn a phrase, to use a different word to maybe probe and to excite or ignite new thinking. I love words. I I told this one individual, I said, listen, do you remember when the word gay meant joyous, happy, affable, jolly, celebratory? 
And I said, you took a word that had nothing to do with the homosexual lifestyle, and you tried to give it a new definition. It's now part of the dictionary. Now, if you follow etymological trends, gay by younger people today means simply geeky, stupid, foolish. Oh, that's so gay. Words take on meanings, don't they, in cultures. They evolve. That's what etymology does. Live gospel biblical truth, LGBT. That's how I choose to interpret that acronym. Does the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community need Christ? Yes. They do not need rocks thrown at them. They do not need our scorn. They do need the Lord Jesus Christ just as much as you and I need. Because, folks, our identity, if it's not rooted in Jesus, I don't care how the sin manifests itself, we're lost. This is not about living better moral lives. This is about life transformation in Jesus Christ. So Ephesians 4, in a light of pedophilia being excused as simply being curiosity about puberty, in light of transgenderness being excused as a genetic deformity and men trying to surgically, women trying to surgically recreate themselves against how a creator God has thought of, we need to understand how it is to live in this culture as Christians in the put-off, put-on relationship. So let's look at this together. Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 18. Number two is depravity. Depravity. Notice this here with me. They are darkened in their understanding. That's where it begins. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, and it's due to their hardness of heart. Know the triumvirate of the pathological condition of anyone without Jesus. Darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God, and it's due to the hardness of their heart. Darkened in their understanding. The will of their minds, in other words. It will incur divine retribution. Deep-rooted ignorance. The result of them not seeing fit to acknowledge God. They're estranged, as Colossians 1.21 says, estranged and hostile in mind, alienated from the life of God, which is the source of all life that is worth living. And therefore, as they have been already instructed in Ephesians 2 here, dead in trespass and sin. That's all of our lives before we come to know Jesus. So this hardening of the heart is the progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrongdoing. I want to say that again. The hardening of the heart, it's the loss of the conscience. It's the callousness of conscience. It's the progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrongdoing. Paul says in Romans 2.15 that conscience serves as a witness to the very law of God implanted within us. It's written on the hearts of all people. That's why even in indigenous cultures, they know it's wrong to steal, wrong to commit adultery, wrong to do certain things. Why? It is God's law written on the tablets of men's hearts. There's the divine conscience. 
the divine convictions of man conscience, habitual ignoring of the warning signals sends out, and it incapacitates it from fulfilling its proper function. Such a conscience, Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.2, is a seared conscience. A seared conscience. The loss of the conscience in the American mind today is one of the most profound amputations that has occurred in modern evangelical history. We are to guard our conscience. Dr. MacArthur tells a wonderful story where a pilot is flying and he's caught in a tremendous storm and there was a mountain range ahead and the the pilot was flying and the autopilot was saying, pull up, pull up. And they said, no, it can't be. We're way, way above this mountain range. And the, the voice kept coming, coming back, pull up, pull up as they were flying through the storm. They couldn't see outside. He didn't trust the instrument reading on the panel. And just a few minutes afterwards, that plane crashed into the mountaintop and all were killed on board. The conscience is the instrument panel of the heart that is saying when you're headed in a certain direction, pull up, pull up, danger ahead. And when we cease to acknowledge and heed the warning of the conscience, the law of God written on the tablets of our lives, even for a believer, if we head down a path we know is not right and we fail to heed that warning, we're eventually, beloved, we're going to crash and burn. The conscience becomes seared, it becomes dull. And therefore, it's what Isaiah 5 says, that woe to the generation that says, that calls evil good and good evil. No conscience. No conscience. It's seared. They ignore the warning signs. So here, this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. I've put up a few verses for you because I want you to see this in a profound way. Let's go together here to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Again, I want to spend some time on this because this is what we would call in theology is a presuppositional apologetic. What, what that means is this. God has defined the nature of man. He has defined himself. And certain things are axiomatic truths. Certain things are given. Certain truths are simply stated, and they don't need to be proven. This is one of those statements on the nature of man, all mankind. And this is helpful if you're going into this culture to witness to anyone that is unregenerate thinking, how do I know their life? You don't have to know every jot and tittle of someone's life to know where they're coming from. Let me give you the broad brushstroke here. Here's the taxonomy. Here's the pathology of fallen man. Verse 18 of Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There's the first principle. All people, all unsaved people, they suppress the truth and they do it in unrighteousness. It's a conscience act. It's a choice. It's a suppression of the truth. They try to suffocate its existence out. Notice this phrase, the wrath of God. There are five kinds of wrath mentioned in the Bible. There's eternal wrath, which is this first kind of wrath. There's eschatological wrath, which is the end times wrath, the dissolving of the planet, the new heavens, the new earth, God's wrath being showered upon 
people for their disobedience to the gospel. There's also the kind of wrath that is the reaping and sowing kind of wrath. You do this and this will happen. You do this and this may materialize in your life. There's that kind of wrath. There's the cataclysmic wrath that we see of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in various cities because of their abject waywardness and wholesale disobedience against the standard of a holy God. You have eternal wrath, eschatological wrath, reaping and sowing wrath. You have cataclysmic wrath. And then you have wrath that is the wrath kind of mentioned here where God gives you over. It's a consequential wrath. He just releases himself from you and he hands you over to a certain kind of sin. So Paul says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Resistance is going to happen to the gospel because that's the truth. Men love the darkness, John 3, more than light. Why? Because when the light comes, it exposes their dark deeds. Men don't want to change, and I mean mankind. We love the sin. We love the darkness. We satisfy it. So he says in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them. No atheists, right? No, no real functional practical atheists. Because God has no, shown it to them. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Someone says, I don't believe in God. I had one of the students tell me, I don't believe in that book. I don't believe in God. I said, I know that you're not being truthful. Step outside some night. In these beautiful, clear Florida skies right now, you see Jupiter. It almost looks like a bright, shiny star. Gorgeous skies. The creation is the glory of God put on display, his creative power, his invisible attributes, his divine nature. They're without excuse as to an existence of a holy God. We know that. This is part of the apologetic. For although they knew God, that doesn't mean we're in personal relationship with them, but they knew him. They knew of his divine power. They knew of his eternal attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. He says, although they knew that, they did not honor him as God. Notice this phrase, or give thanks to him. Or give thanks. It's one of the byproducts of knowing God. We thank him for all things. That's why we pray before we eat our food, even in a public restaurant. We don't make a, a divine spectacle of ourselves, but we quietly thank God for all that he's given to us. It's a good practice to have. And it says they became futile in their thinking. We just talked about that. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's classified as hate speech in today's universities. But that's what Scripture says. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they exchange, look at it, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. Idolatry. They'd rather worship the creation than the creator. If you've ever been to some of the jungles and some of the indigenous cultures around the globe, you'll see totem poles or you'll see large idols or, 
relics, and they're usually about birds and animals and creeping things or even distorted figures of man. And they choose to worship those stone idols which cannot hear, smell, think, act, walk, talk. They're not worthy of your worship, Psalm 115 says. Therefore, notice this, God gave them up. God just, he relinquished them to these things. He just said, you want this? You want my wrath? You want a life without me? You want to serve the creature rather than the creator? You want to make yourself the object of your worship? You want to recreate me in your own image so that he's a God of convenience rather than a God of holiness? God says, I'll let you have that. And he gives three groups of people over to that. Notice the first group. God gives them to the lusts of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? This is just unbridled passion, unguarded pleasure. They've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Idolatry. And it came out in the dishonoring of their flesh of their bodies due to their lustful hearts. And it was given over to acatharsia, impurity, any uncleanness. That's the first group. Just unguarded, unbridled passion, lasciviousness gone mad. And then he says in verse 26, for this reason... God gave them up. Here he is again. He's just handing them over to their own evil desires. And he says he gave them up to dishonorable passions. What's the dishonorable passion? Their women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. There you have lesbian activity defined. And, verse 27, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. There you have the homosexual lifestyle, the gay lifestyle defined. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. They wear it. They wear the sin. It's on them. Now again, all sin is sin, but certain sins have greater consequence. Greater weight. And he says there's the sin of heterosexual lust in the hearts, all impurity dishonoring their bodies. The sin of homosexual lust, dishonorable passion. But it's contrary to nature. Could it be any more clear, beloved? This is the Lord God speaking through the Apostle Paul in Romans 1. The issue is a heart issue. It's a soul issue. It's a mind issue. And then in verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what happens in the progression of this kind of spiritual pathology? God gave them up. Here's the third thing he gives them over to. It says, A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. A debased mind. We just read about this 
What is a debased mind? It's a reprobate mind. What is a reprobate mind? It's a mind that is tested and tried and found useless. What is it? It's a mind that has no conscience. It's seared. They've lost the ability to discern between what is right and what is wrong in those things that are pleasing to God. And therefore, man wants to recreate God to be a God of convenience, a God of tolerance. It was said on one of my interactions with a member of that community, God is a God of love, yes. God is a God of holiness, yes. But tolerance does not represent either of those attributes. When people say that God is a God of love, they've been Oprahfied. And what they mean is, God tolerates my choices. I want a God not that demands anything from me in worship or life or sanctification or holiness or repentance or even what I do is sin. I want a God that tolerates my existence. And therefore, if God simply loves everyone, what anyone means that says that is that God tolerates and supports exactly what I do and how I do it. And that's the kind of God I want to serve. That is not the God of the Bible. That is a God of man's convenient sinful nature. You see, it comes back to their view of God. Beloved, even in the church, we never live beyond our view of God. If you have a God that's cheap, if you have a God that's convenient, if you have a God that tolerates sin and you want to call it love, that's how you're going to live. But if you have a God, the God of the Scriptures, that's high and exalted and holy and transcendent and righteous and pure and dwells in an approachable light, then you're going to want to live by His grace a life that is holy and honorable before Him because He's a divine judge to whom we will have to one day give an account. But a convenient God does not demand anything from you. He simply tolerates you. And you call it love. The pathology here is clear in Scripture. A reprobate mind. It's a mind with a seared conscience, a mind that has so dulled its conscience that the warning sign comes and it says, I'm not listening. It's what he says in Psalm 50. Judah was headed off in all matters of disobedience and unrighteousness and sinfulness before a holy God. And the psalmist says, representing the Lord, the Lord speaking, saying, because I did not bring swift judgment upon you immediately, and here's the phrase, he says, you thought I was just like you. That should be branded on the doors of most major universities. You thought I was just like you. A what? A God of tolerance. But he says, turn and repent, lest I dash you to pieces and lest I consume my wrath upon you. God is love. God is holy. God is righteous. God is true. God is merciful and he's full of grace. But he is not tolerant against anything that affronts his holy character. He's a reverent, holy God. He's not lawless. So look at this list, an excess of natural lust, an excess of unnatural lust, 
And he says they've been given over to a debased mind. Look what happens. They're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of evil, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, inventors of evil, inventors of evil. There's not enough evil already. They've got to invent more. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Kids, did you hear that? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know this. Remember, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We did that before we came to Jesus. He says they not only do them, they give approval for those that do them. They just cheer it on. You get on the cover of Vanity Fair. You're on Jerry Springer. You're on Late Night Talk. You're being interviewed on national radio. You're on Facebook and Twitter. And man, people just applaud that all day long. They give approval to those who practice them. And those that say, here's the standard of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, of God's truth, they'll sue you. They'll take you to court. They'll report you to the FBI. They'll say it's hate speech. They'll say it's harassment. And all as we're doing is saying, it's gospel. It's gospel. Men love the darkness rather than the light. That's it, beloved. In Ephesians 4, when he says those things of depravity, depravity, they become darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, and it's due to their hardness of heart. Again, we saw last week, depravity doesn't mean that I sin as bad as, as often as I could sin in every area of sin every day of my life. That's not depravity. Depravity does mean that I am a sinner and that I'm unable to save myself from my sins and be made right with a holy God by my own religious or good works. It means inability. Inability. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. And doggone it, though people like me, without Jesus, I'm headed for an eternal hell. Depravity means I'm unable to save myself. I don't have the ability. That's why it takes God. We love him. Why? He first loved us. He came to us. A seared conscience, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They knew God, but they did not honor him. There's an, again, an, an ethical consequence to disobedience due to paganism, due to covetousness, due to idolatry, due to false worship. This is the time we live in. There's a depravity. We're going to have to stop there this morning. It gets better. But you'll have to come next week to hear the rest of the story. Ephesians 
This is a book of tremendous practicality. I don't know what it is to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, but I do know what it is to be the chief of sinners. And my sin of self-righteous religious pride is the sin that drove Satan out of glory because he wanted to exalt himself above the throne of the Most High God. He thought he was self-sufficient and didn't need to worship God. I grew up in a very wonderful Christian family, a wonderful Christian community, but I thought religious morality and civility was my savior, and I was wrong. I was headed to an eternal hell more than anyone I've spoken about this morning, and the Lord had to show me divine grace to waken me up from the deadness of my own depravity. And I'm so glad he saved me. The LGBT community is not our enemy, but they are in sin. They need Jesus in a profound way. May I encourage you this morning not to serve a God of convenience, a God of your own creation. But come to the foot of the cross, confess your sin, repent of it, turn from, turn from it. Turn from it and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. It's the only hope for eternity you have. Repent of your sin, come to Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and become new creations in him. Father, we thank you for the timeliness of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the joy of this put-off, put-on relationship, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. We know that that old nature was crucified with Christ. We are new creations, and therefore we want to live in new and profound ways to you and your glory. Lord, we're thankful that you allow us through great media today to be a witness to people, to encourage them. And lo, Lord, they call names and other things. That's okay. We can take that for the kingdom. It's all right. They can say whatever they want to. Our character is in your hands. We wish them no harm. But oh, Lord, how we long to see them know Jesus. And so, Father, give us opportunity this week to go into a lost world, not as self-righteous hypocrites, but as saved men and women who once did the very things that you've saved us from, that while we were dead in trespasses and sin, while we were slaves to disobedience, while we were slaves to the prince of the power of the air, while we were by nature children of wrath, it says then, but God being rich in mercy saved us. That God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. No greater love song. So, Lord, may we respond this week with grace. Thank you for a chance to trust you, to live for you, to love you. For it's in the name of the eternal God we pray. Amen.